0: Hear the word of God from the last chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thanks, Tony. Good morning, Waypoint. It's great to worship with you this morning and open God's word. I've titled the message this morning, let me leave you with this. We come to the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, and... When you leave someone, you often try to leave them with parting words. I think of my mother, who played a tremendous spiritual influence on my life. And each day when I would walk out the door to go get on the bus to go to school, she would say the words that she got from Oswald Chambers. She would always say to me, Peter, walk with the king today. And those words would linger in my mind. Parting words that we give someone are meant to be not comprehensive of everything we've told them, but they're meant to be lingering with power to help land some of the things that we've said throughout our life and with, throughout our ministry and throughout our time with someone. When you end a phone call, you often, with someone who's close to you, end it with, love you, bye, bye. There, there's that lingering power of you want that message, no matter what was said throughout that conversation, you want that lingering power to remain. So we come to the book of, end of the book of 2 Corinthians, and Paul is leaving the church with some final words. Now, throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been responding to the criticisms that had arisen regarding his life and ministry. We've noted this all along our journey through 2 Corinthians, that uh, some of these criticisms that had arisen in the Corinthian church were questioning Paul's authenticity as a minister of the gospel, that he didn't have the charisma, the personality, uh, some of the well-polished features of some of the perhaps powerful influencers of that day. Corinthians was a metropolitan city. You could compare it to a a New York City of America. There were well-educated, well-so-called cultured people. And there were some within the church that were calling into question, Paul doesn't have the, the features that we would hope for. He's not well polished. In fact, he's suffering a lot. And there's this question that has arisen throughout the book that Paul's addressing of, does suffering and hardship discredit God's power in his life and ministry? And so chapter after chapter of 2 Corinthians... Paul has been giving a defense of not only his life and ministry, but of the gospel itself. You see, Paul could care less what the Corinthians think about him. But he knows that their critiques of him are symptomatic of a deeper issue, a gospel issue. At the end of chapter 12, in verse 19, he says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God of those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. In other words, the point of the letter of 2 Corinthians is not about Paul. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel It's about helping the Corinthian church reorder their values according to the gospel rather than the world. And so as we wrap up this book this morning, I think here's an important uh, underlying truth that we see both in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's become kind of a theme that Paul wants to highlight for the church. And it's this, you can put it on the screen, when the church's vision... Gets clouded by the world's values, we gravitate toward the power of charisma rather than the power of Christ. Let me say that again. when the church's vision gets clouded by the world's values, we will gravitate toward the power of charisma, attractiveness, personality, rather than the power. Of Christ. And that is underlying a lot of Paul's concern for the church. In other words, when the world's values start to influence the way we approach church and life and approaching what it means to live in this world as a Christian, when we allow the world's values to influence our vision, we start to gravitate to what toward what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. And so it's in this context that Paul comes to the end of 2 Corinthians with a rather serious tone. Because this is his concern. If we're not careful, we're going to gravitate in this direction. So Paul's planning to make a third visit to the Corinthians. We we know from previous contexts he, he made a first visit where he planted this church in Corinth. And then we have the book of 1 uh, Corinthians and we also know that there's probably some other letters to the Corinthians mixed in along the way. But The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing some deep sin that has entered into the church. And so after that letter is written, he makes a second visit to them. And he calls this a painful visit. Because when the people aren't walking in light of the gospel, there are some hard things that need to be said. And so that second visit was a painful visit. So as he prepares for a third visit, he writes this letter and he says to them, Chapter 12, verse 20. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And that you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Imagine for a moment that you are putting your kids to bed. If you don't have kids, just humor me and use this in your imagination. Let's imagine you have twin five-year-old boys. Let me pray for you. (laughs) Um, You let them do their bedtime routine. You start getting ready toward bed and you go up to their room and you lay the ground rules. Boys, here's the rules. You stay in your own beds until morning, okay? You put them in bed, you go downstairs, and all is quiet. A few minutes later, you hear tiptoes on the floor. A few seconds later, you hear a full-out wrestling match. You yell up the stairs, boys, remember what I said? quiets down for a little bit. And soon enough, the wrestling match ensues. So what do you do? You go up the stairs, you go in their room, they quickly get in their beds, and you say, you remember the rules, you stay in your bed till morning. You go back downstairs, a few minutes later, you hear tiptoes. You hear what is an attempt to be a quiet wrestling match. (laughs) And you yell up the stairs, what do you say? You say, When I come up there, I really hope I find you doing what you're supposed to be doing because I don't want to discipline you. That's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians here. I've been up there, I laid the ground rules, I gave you multiple messages. I had a visit where I know things were out of order and I'm coming up there again. And I really hope that I find you doing what you're supposed to be doing. And this is the heartbeat of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's really chapter 13, verse 10. It says, this is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority God gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. And so throughout this, this chapter of 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is really just desiring that when he comes to the church, he doesn't have to use discipline That he doesn't have to be harsh with those who are doing that list that we saw in chapter 12 of disorder and slander. And he goes on in in the verse after that, in chapter 12, verse 20, where he says, and and I'm concerned that some that were in, in sexual sin that I addressed in my first letter, I'm afraid I'm going to find them in that state as well. And so his concern in writing this letter is he gives these parting words is I really hope when I come, we can have a good visit. That I don't have to be harsh in my discipline. And so in light of these concerns, what does Paul command here in chapter 13? Well, the first thing he says is, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves ironically the word test here is the very word used in a couple verses before this when it says when he said you are seeking proof that christ is speaking in me and what paul is doing here is he's turning the tables this whole letter has been paul under the microscope is paul's ministry authentic and real And here, in his parting words, he turns the tables and he says, actually, I'm not the one who should be under the microscope. It's you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The cultural commentator, this came up in the office as we were discussing this this week. The cultural commentator Ice Cube probably said it best. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Examine yourself, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I I believe that Paul here is not necessarily calling into question the faith of all the believers in Corinth, but he is instructing them to take inventory of whether their thoughts, values, and actions are congruent with the faith that they profess. Then he gives us the litmus test, the characteristic of being in the faith, as he says. Then to verse 5 says this, Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you. Notice these making the assumption there that I really do believe that Christ is in you, church. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. And so what is the test that Paul is saying? Examine yourselves, test yourselves. Look within yourselves and is Christ in you? And I think this is important because of all the the standards that Paul could set as a litmus test for are you in the faith? He gives this. Is Christ in you? This is a repeated theme throughout Paul's writings. In Romans chapter 8 verses 9 and 10, he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Later on, it says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you're like me, you come to passages like this, and they have haunted me at times in my spiritual journey causing me to question my salvation. Paul says, examine whether you are in the faith. Am I in the faith? Is Christ in me? How do I know? And if you're like me, this can be a hard concept in our spiritual journey. And I want to just take a moment and speak to that for a moment. I think sometimes when we read scripture, we often kind of read it like a gold mine where we're reading through it and we're like, Paul's talking about weakness and power and what is that? Okay, here's a clear command. Examine yourselves. Okay, I'm going to take this nugget of gold. Examine yourselves. You take verse five and you're like, okay, I'm going to try to apply this to my life. Examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. Okay, let's, let's lay it all on the, on the board. Am I truly following Jesus? Well, I've got sin in my life. Does that mean Christ isn't in me? And we start to go through this process. And what sometimes we do with Scripture is we we fail to take into the context of who Paul's writing to. He's writing to a specific situation where he says there are specific sins, and specifically unrepentant sins that are happening in the church in Corinth. And it is giving reason... For, you to, for me to question, are you in the faith? And so what I want to say is, should verse 5, examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith, some, be something that we do on a regular daily basis as a follower of Jesus? I want to say this. I want to say, I think we should continually be intentional about in, taking inventory of our hearts and our lives. Are our thoughts, values, and actions congruent with the faith that we possess and that we profess? Taking inventory, being intentional, and I think that's part of what we can take away from Paul's words here, where he's really serious about examining ourselves. I think we can take that away, but I don't think that what Paul is saying is that this is meant to be plied in the believer's life on a regular basis, that you're meant to question whether you are in the faith. I think what he is saying is if there is unrepentant sin or patterns of habitually letting your values be shaped by the world rather than the gospel, then you need to have a heart check. But that is the context that he's speaking to. And so that's important for us to realize as we think about how to apply his parting words here. I think we should examine ourselves see whether our thoughts, values, and actions align with the faith that we profess. But when it comes to questioning whether we are in the faith, I think what justifies that is habitual, continual patterns of unrepentant sin and our values and our lives being shaped by the world rather than the gospel. And sometimes that comes about through someone like Paul, a brother or sister in our lives who speak into that, hey, I see this in your life and I think you need to check your heart. You need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And sometimes that comes about by by our conscience, by the spirit of God prompting us to say, you know what? I am not living in light of the faith that I profess. And so I need to kind of take inventory of my heart and life. So the first thing that Paul leaves the church in Corinth with is check yourselves. Check yourselves. Are you walking in light of the faith that you profess? And then I want to jump down to verse 11. Paul gives these final five commands to the church. He says this, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. It's interesting if you are reading a different translation, some of your translations might say goodbye, and you're kind of wondering why does this say rejoice here, and in other translations it says goodbye. Well, the reason is that he's literally saying rejoice, but a lot of people read the context of of chapter 13 where he's so serious about sin, and his heart is so heavy, how can he say rejoice at this point? But I think that Paul is very hopeful for the believers in Corinth. He's very hopeful that when he comes up there to the boys in the room, he's going to find them in their beds. And that's going to be a reason for joy. I think that part of what happens when we examine our lives and reorder our lives according to the gospel's values rather than the world's values, we find an upside-down, inside-out way of living in which we have joy in the midst of a world that is full of brokenness. And so instead of that list in chapter 12 of slander and discord and and arrogance, and pride, we find joy and contentment. This is the product of a heart that has realigned its values with the gospel rather than the world we have. Joy, he says, rejoice. He says, strive for full restoration. And this is this word here, it, it, it's kind of a complex word that he uses for restoration. It's a word that's used, um, it's used in the Gospels when the disciples are mending their nets. That's the word for restoring, mending, putting back in their right order. It's a word that was used in the ancient world for um, putting a, almost like chiropractics, putting a bone back into place if it has been broken. Restore, aim for full restoration. Put your life back in the order that you were designed for. And so he's telling them to aim for maturity, completeness. He says strive for restoration. And what I want to encourage us with and leave us with as a church here is that Paul's parting words is, I long for you to be mature disciples. I long for you to grow into who you were made to be. And that starts with checking yourself and then allowing your life to be shaped by the gospel's values rather than the world. And as you do, you start to mature. You start to straighten out. You start to become who you were meant to be. And so he says, strive for full restoration. He uses uh, another form of this, just a couple verses before, it, when he says... um. I pray for you, Uh, let me find this, Uh, verse 7. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we have seemed to fail. And then he jumps down, he says, our prayer is that you may be fully restored. So this is Paul's prayer for the church, that they would be complete, that they would be put back in right order. And so strive for full restoration. next command he gives is encourage one another. This word encourage is a word that he started this book with. When he said, blessed be the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort anyone with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. He says, encourage, it literally means comfort. He's telling us, comfort one another. When when our lives, when our church's vision is reordered, when it's shaped, when it's grounded in the gospel's values rather than the world's values, we will aim to comfort and encourage one another. I was talking with someone here from Waypoint uh, a few weeks ago and he was telling me that one of his prayers every Saturday before he comes to worship on Sunday is that he prays, one, that he would hear a fresh word from the Lord, two, that he would engage with God in meaningful worship, and three, that he would find someone to encourage. And I thought, wow, that is such a good posture to approach the church And when, here's what happens is when the world's values start to shape the way we approach the assembly of believers, when we start to let the world's values start to shape how we approach one another, we are constantly thinking of how are we received? How can we be encouraged? And those are good things. But When the world's values start to shape the church, it becomes about us. It becomes about the power of charisma. It becomes about the power of appearance. But when the gospel's values start to shape the church, we start to think about others before we think about ourselves. And we start to say, How can I encourage someone today? And I just think of the subversive nature of how, the gospel, how Paul is imagining the gospel transforming the Corinthian church, where there is anger and discord and division and there is slander and there is questioning of gospel ministry. There's all these critical things happening in the church. And he's just imagining, what if the gospel takes root and people just start encouraging one another? And they start living out of the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And we start to comfort one another. He says, encourage one another. And then he says, be of one mind. Literally, it says, agree with one another. Be of one mind. Now, I want to be clear about this. This is not an admonition that we all have to think the same. But to be of one mind means what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 is, have this mind among you. Have this attitude among you, that of Jesus Christ, who though being fully God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, becoming the form of a servant. Even to the point of death. Jesus took this self-giving, humble love and he lived among us, considering us higher than himself. I think that's what Paul's saying when he says be of one mind. He's not saying we're all going to think the same or that we're all going to be uniform in the way that we approach life or even how we think about certain passages of Scripture or doctrines or theology, but what we can have in unity is that we have the mind of Jesus and we're going to put others before ourselves. And when the gospel's values start to transform the church, this is what he is envisioning. He's envisioning a church that encourages one another, a church that has the attitude of Jesus with one another. And finally, he says, live in peace. And the peace and the love and the God of love and peace will be with you. So just to review this chapter, I think Paul says, check yourself. And then he says, invest yourself in joy. In restoration, maturity, growing into who we were made to be. And being of, of one mind of having the mind of Jesus. Invest yourself in encouraging one another. Invest yourself in living in the peace that we have received in Christ. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, we have peace with God and so we have peace with one another. And it starts to transform our community. And then, so invest yourself in these things. It doesn't stop with checking yourself and taking inventory. It moves toward being intentional about investing in the things and the fruits of the gospel at work in our lives. And then he says, this is where the spirit of God dwells. This is where the God of love and peace will be found, is in the place where a people have been shaped by the gospel's values rather than the world. In a place where people check themselves, invest themselves, and then finally entrust yourself. Notice the way that he ends this letter. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We have a beautiful Trinitarian benediction in the next few weeks during the season of Advent, we are considering the Trinity together. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how the incarnation of Jesus meets us in this season. So I'm not going to hit on the deep theology of this verse. We'll do that in the next few weeks. But what I want to suggest is Paul concludes with this to say, you can't do this. All these things that I've commanded you in this letter. The transformation that happens, that brings about joy and unity and encouragement in the body. Here's the source. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Entrust yourself to the one who can do this in us. And so church, here's my prayer for us as we kind of wrap up this letter to to the book of, um, to the church in Corinth. I said it early in the sermon, when the world's values, when the church's vision gets clouded by the world's values, we will gravitate toward the power of charisma rather than the power of Christ. But when the gospel's values start to shape our vision, we will gravitate toward a kingdom that is upside down, where weakness is strength, where the last shall be first, where the power of God is at work in the midst of suffering. We will gravitate toward that kingdom And we will find joy. We will find maturity. And we will find unity as a body. One of my mentors um, was a preaching professor. He became like a spiritual father to me. Uh, He ended up officiating Mary and I's wedding. Uh, Just a dear friend and spiritual father. Anytime I would preach a sermon, I... um, I first season pastored with him at his church and he would always tell me, Peter, stay humble, walk with Jesus, keep sin out of your life and you're going to be all right. That was his parting words for me almost every time we were together. Peter, stay humble, walk with Jesus, keep sin out of your life and you're going to be all right. Paul's parting words to the church, the words I want to leave you with are, check yourself. Invest yourself in this community and entrust yourself to the one who can do this. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your grace, for your love, and for the fellowship that we have in your spirit. God, thanks for this book of 2 Corinthians that really has challenged a lot of the ways that the world tends to shape our, our value system and the way that we think about life. And Lord, even as we think about things that are hard, like suffering and weakness, Lord, I thank you for these reminders in Second Corinthians that you are in those things. That they aren't a contradiction of your power but that you meet us in those places to show us the greatness of your grace, the sufficiency of your power. And God, I pray that we as a church would continue to grow into that restoration, that maturity, that mending that you want to do in our lives. Lord, I pray for any this morning that need to hear those hard words. Check yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I pray that if any here this morning have never received you as Savior and Lord of their life, God, I pray that your Spirit would... Continue to show them the sufficiency of your grace, the greatness of your love, and the sweet fellowship that is found in a right relationship with you. God, I pray for many this morning who've been walking with you for for a while, but maybe even these words this morning or just a good reminder to take regular inventory of what's shaping our thoughts, our values, and our actions. And God, I pray that you would produce in us the kind of joy, the kind of unity, and the kind of maturity that can only come from you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.